Revelation chapter 19, as we continue working our way through um, Revelation. Uh, we need not worry that some of these things we've been reading about and thinking upon on past weeks are actually happening in our world today. I'm not quite sure we're there yet. I think we're probably more in Matthew 24 times when we're seeing some signs of what is to come, um, but we're not quite in Revelation yet. So these are still things we're looking forward to. Revelation 19 and verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and the riders and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Amen. This as God's word this morning. Let's pause for a moment and just pray together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for the scriptures this morning, the very word of God, that word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, sweeter than the honeycomb, able to make us wise unto salvation, a light unto our path, a lamp unto our pathway. Come, O Lord, come by your Spirit. Help us to read, to mark, to learn, and to inwardly digest, and all for Jesus' sake and your glory. Amen. During the early years of the millennium, for those of you that were young enough to maybe remember that, dangerous things. 2001, 2002, 2003, J.R.R. Tolkien's incredible literary work, The Lord of the Rings, was made into a big budget film. We keenly anticipated the launch of the very first one, uh, went to the cinema uh, to watch it. You'll not be going to the cinema for a wee while to watch the launch of uh, the latest films, I suspect, at the moment. But we did then 
and then eagerly awaited the second and the third film, keenly anticipating the third film I was, for it was the battle to end all battles when Frodo and Sam, journeying with the ring, went all the way to Mount Doom so they could destroy it and with it all evil. Well, Gandalf and Aragorn uh, went into battle with Sauron and his forces. And it was a tense film, an incredible film, a story full of ups and downs. But in the end, good won over evil. Sorry, spoiler alert. If you've never seen the three of them, I've just spoiled the, the end of the film for you. Good wins over evil. The ring was destroyed. Aragorn rightfully returned as king. We're awaiting something of the same kind of battle here in Revelation, the battle to end all battles. For three years now, we've been journeying our way through the book of Revelation. We began in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, uh, reading those incredible words. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And the tone was set right there at the beginning of the book. This book is about Jesus. It's about his return to earth to rule and to reign. It's about the return of the king. And after learning of the letters to the churches, after being taken into heaven through John's vision, seeing and learning of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowl judgments, having witnessed the judgment to come on evil and Satan, we now reach the glorious return of the king. That promise given in Revelation 1 is now about to be fulfilled. Here we find that Jesus is about to return and claim what is rightfully his. Jesus wins. So we've been thinking right through the whole purpose of the tribulation period, chapter 6 through 18, is to prepare the world for the coming of the king. The passage we're, uh, we've read this morning about to study today speaks of that great moment in the future when Jesus will return to this earth in power and glory to claim what is rightfully his. The first time Jesus came to this world, he came as a redeemer. The next time he comes, he is coming as ruler. The first time he came and he faced a cross, the next time he comes, he will be wearing a crown. The first time uh, there was a tomb, uh, the next time there's going to be a throne. Friends, Jesus is returning to rule and to reign. He will defeat evil fully and finally. Satan will be vanquished. Christ will be victorious. And we will be present with our Lord in glory and live in peace forever. What a day that's going to be. Uh, so let's dive in this morning and see what it says about this glorious return of the king. We begin in verse, one, uh, verse 11 sorry, with the coming of the king. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is the second time a door has been opened in heaven in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 4, John saw heaven opened in order to let him in. This time, however, heaven is opened so that John may see who is coming out. The first time the door in heaven was opened, it was opened so that the church, the bride of Christ, could join the Lord in heaven. When this door is opened, it allows the Lord to ride out of heaven to return to this earth. That first door, for me, speaks of the rapture of the church. The second door that's opened in heaven speaks of the return 
of Christ. John sees Jesus riding out of heaven, and he notices three things. He notices, John first of all notices Jesus' appearance. Jesus is riding on a white horse. Jesus is no longer seen in humility as he was the first time he had come to earth. He's no longer gentle, humble, riding on the back of a donkey. Instead, he rides the traditional white horse ridden by victorious Roman generals in their triumphal processions through the streets of Rome. White symbolizes being spotless, unblemished, absolute holy character that there is of the rider on this horse. John sees Jesus returning as conqueror. The last time the world saw Jesus, they saw him dead on a cross. The world looked at Jesus as a victim. This time they're going to see him as the victor. As Jesus appears on the white horse, the world will see the one who is faithful and true. Satan has been the author of lies and deceit. Ever since the fall of humanity, this world has lived under the influence of the father of lies. But a king is coming who is faithful and true in all of his ways. He is a man of his word. Every promise that he ever made, he will keep and fulfill. I am so glad that we depend on the promises of God. People will fail us. They will fail us. But he will always do what he has promised to do. Not only is he faithful and true, but we read in verse 11 that with justice he judges and makes war. That word justice is often translated as righteousness. Uh, With righteousness he judges and makes war. All down through history there have been wars, haven't there? Uh, Many have been fought uh, for foolish reasons. In fact, actually, I'd probably argue that all wars boil down to one thing, sin. They boil down to the very uh, letter in the very middle of sin. It boils down to I. They all come from the fact that people want to be God. They try to place themselves in a position where they will be in total charge of everything that's around them. Indeed, at one stage, in charge of the entire world. When they do this, what happens? People stand up and they say, no, you're not going to reign over us. You're not going to rule over us. And therefore, war is the result. And this world has suffered under the heavy hand of power, hungry, inconsiderate people whose only objective was to gain their heart's desire, to gain that power, to gain that prestige, to gain riches and wealth and honor and power. Much of what we see and experience in our day is without justice. Much of the world suffers under the hands of evil dictators, those who have no compassion over those whom they reign and rule over. Jesus is coming to set the record straight. He will come as a righteous judge. People will be judged according to his holy standard. This will not be the battle of a power-hungry dictator, but the war of a holy God who has come to declare his holiness and bring judgment upon those who have denied him and earned their just reward. His judgments are righteous and true. John describes him also in verse 12 as having eyes like blazing fire. This reveals the omniscient, all-seeing eye Of Christ, people have lived under the cover of the darkness of sin, indulging in the pleasures of the flesh. But Jesus has seen their deeds. He knows their acts of wickedness, and he will return. He will return, it says, wearing many crowns, revealing his power and his authority. 
He was despised of men. He was belittled and rejected the first time he came. But the Lord was given a crown of thorns, a borrowed tomb. But when he comes again, it won't be as before. He will come wearing a crown of glory, not as a humble man, but as a ruling judge being seated on a throne of power. John also sees there in verse 12 that he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Jesus has a name that no one knows but himself. And so I'm going to let you into a secret this morning. I don't know either. (laughs) But there are people out there who try and tell you what this name is going to be. We don't know. We really don't know. Uh, The Bible is full of different names and titles of Jesus, but this one I don't know. I can't offer any suggestions to you to what that name might be. We might never know. He might never let us into that secret at all. It may always forever be a name that is written on him that no one knows but himself. All I do know is it's a name reserved for our Lord. And here is the point in this. Humanity has refused to know Jesus. They would not use his name unless they're using it as some kind of byword, as some kind of slang word, as some kind of swear word. But now here, the day of grace has passed. Now they cannot know him even if they desire to. How sad that's going to be. I'm glad I know the name of Jesus, my Savior, my Redeemer, and my Lord. You can too. I talk about him always, so you must know who he is by now. And if you don't know, then you need to go and Google search this afternoon. Um, He's my king. And listen to that. I almost put it up on the screen this morning because some of you have seen it uh, before. An incredible seven-minute oration uh, by a preacher uh, 50, 60 years ago probably who stood up and just spoke about he's my king. I'll maybe put a link up later on on our Facebook or uh, something there. Jesus, the name above all names. John reminds us of who he is here in verse 13. He says he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. A quick word on the clothing first, since it it comes first there. He came the first time, and he was stripped of those blood-stained garments. He had been beaten, and he had been whipped. He had been mocked, and he had been abused. And they stripped him of those blood-stained garments. In fact, they gambled for it as if it were a prize. He won't be stripped and humiliated when he returns this time. But he will come with the blood of his enemies upon his robe. Here's a picture of judgment, a picture of Christ trampling uh, the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. And notice his name, the Word of God. John unmistakably identifies this rider as the Lord Jesus Christ by using this title for Christ that he himself had often used elsewhere. Do you remember back to John's gospel? To John uh, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. And just before I move on from His appearance, I want to jump down to verse 16 so we clearly see His name and know exactly who this is we're talking about here. Because it says, on His robe and on His thigh, He has this name given, King of kings and Lord of Lords, this name given to Christ here expresses his sovereign triumph over all foes. 
his absolute rule, and his soon-to-be-established kingdom. There is no other name that can compare to the name of Jesus. His is the name above all names. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has always deserved this title, but people have always refused to acknowledge it. There's a day coming when they will see him for who he truly is. He will return in power, and everyone will be forced to admit that which they have always denied. Jesus is Lord indeed. Jesus is King. He is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. And I kind of just want to go on and on and on and on and on about all of those, but there's a whole lot more to cover. So I'm going to stop myself somehow or other in mid-flow there. He is king of kings, his appearance. But quickly look at verse 14, because John sees his armies as well. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Jesus will return, but he won't return alone. He will be followed by the very armies of heaven, riding white horses, clothed in fine linen, The redeemed of God will return with Christ when he comes again. And what a glorious thought to ride upon a white stallion as our Lord conquers his enemies and sets up his rule upon the earth. We won't come to fight, though. We're going to come to rejoice with Christ. How do I know it's the saints of God, the bride of Christ, the redeemed? Well, they're wearing exactly the same as the bride is described back in verse 8 that we thought on last week. The members of these armies have washed their robes, have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are purged from all sin and impurity and are arrayed now in bright, white, radiant, and pure garments. Seems a wee bit awkward, doesn't it, for an army uh, to be riding out in in fine-pressed white uh, linen. Almost sounds like if you're going out to do war, you're not going to dress in white because it's going to get dirty so easily. It's going to get covered in blood so easily. But these armies aren't going to be armed. In fact, Christ alone will destroy his enemies. The saints are coming to reign with Christ, not to fight a battle. That is the glorious picture that we're seeing here in these verses. And at the coming of the king, John also sees his armament. I might just want to see his weapons, but I needed an A in there. His weapons, his armament. Verse 14, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is going to be a battle like no other battle before. There's not going to be any conventional weapons of warfare here. The Lord will simply speak, and his mighty voice will go forth as a sharp sword to devour his enemies. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. There's power in the word of Christ. While he walked on this earth, we well know the power that he displayed time and time again simply by speaking. His word calmed the sea. His word brought peace to troubled waters. His words even raised the dead. His word has power to bring light out of darkness, to bring life out of deadness. He speaks and it happens. Do you remember the day that you heard the word of the Lord for yourselves and your eyes were opened and you came in saving faith to him? An incredible day. Friends, this battle will end before people even have time to react to it. It will be swift and it will be final. It will be just and it will be true. Are you ready for the coming of the king? 
Are you saved? Have you put your trust and your faith in Christ alone for your salvation? Have you crowned him as Lord and King of your life? If not, then this is the moment right here. You can forget everything else I'm going to say today. It's important that you put your trust and your faith in Christ alone for your salvation right now. The remaining verses of this chapter show the conquest of the king. They detail the glorious victory that our Lord will win over Satan and over evil power. John moves from describing the return, uh, the returning Christ to emphasizing the victory of the king of kings. There's an angelic announcement in verse 17. A message to the angels. I saw an angel, uh, a message from the angel to the birds. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Angels continue to play a key role in the end times and uh, the events described by John here in the book of Revelation. This angel invites the birds to come and assemble for the great supper uh, of God. Uh, it's a bit like the, um, uh, the bird lady that I often see in Causeway Head. Uh, you see her walking down Causeway Head Road in the morning and she's filled her, her, her poly bag full of bread that she's cut up for the day and she wanders down towards the grass at Stirling Bridge and you can almost see the birds gathering as she walks across because they know what's coming, they know what time of day it is and she stands there in Causeway Head at the, at, just at the bridge and she throws and scatters this bread out of her bag and the birds come feeding down into it. The angel is telling the birds to gather because there's going to be a supper, but it's not bread they're going to be feasting on. Those who have gathered for war against Christ and his armies will be instantly slaughtered and they will be left for the birds of the air to be filled with their flesh. And this is quite interesting because at first glance we look at that and we go, and we kind of want to move past it. But actually it's quite important that the word flesh is mentioned there because it's the desires of our flesh that have kept us away from God. It is the flesh that continually wars against his spirit. We know that from throughout the scriptures. Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 26 that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul urged the, uh, the Christians in Rome, in Romans 13, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In Ephesians 2, that wonderful chapter, Paul writes that all of us also lived like them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You know, Satan may tempt us to do evil, but it is our stinking flesh that follows Satan into sin. If it weren't for the flesh, Satan and the world would have no power over people at all. And we all battle with the flesh. Uh, chances are you are having a battle with the flesh today. And you've probably battled with the world. And you've probably battled with the devil at some point uh, as well. And I want to say to you, there's good news this morning in these very chapters of Revelation because the book of Revelation talks about the judgment and destruction of all three of our enemies 
The world and its evil system were destroyed in Revelation 18. And Revelation 20, the devil is going to be destroyed. And right here in Revelation 19, the flesh is taken care of. There is a day coming when we will not battle anymore with our flesh. And I, for one, am looking forward to that day. Here we see the birds of the air consuming the very thing that kept these people from salvation, the flesh. What a horrid picture we see as the Bible reveals the fate of those who have rejected Christ. Of all the things that we face in this life, our flesh is likely our biggest hindrance. We will one day, one day have a new glorified body and the lust of the flesh will be a thing of the past. After that announcement, we then see the beast and his minions assembling for war. Verse 19, and then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider and the horse and his army. We, we've mentioned Armageddon uh, in recent weeks, the battle of Armageddon a few times actually as we've done our studies, but now the time has finally come. The great and terrible day has finally arrived. The kings and armies of the world will gather to do battle with the Lord. They've gathered in the hopes of defeating the one that they hate Their lives and their pleasures have gone against all that Jesus is. They have dominated the world during the tribulation and feel as if this will be the last step in them obtaining their sinful desires. And so this formidable worldwide army of Antichrist gathers to wait the arrival of the King of Kings. What they fail to realize is that God is working all of this out. They are simply obeying the will of God without even knowing it. He's drawn the armies of the world together in order to destroy them. This world may feel like they are in control and that they are accountable to no one, but one day all will give account to God. And for these, their day of reckoning will be at Armageddon. And on that day, we will see total annihilation. That's what John sees. That's what he records in verses 20 and 21. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed uh, with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It is not a pretty sight. The beast thought he could triumph over anyone. He was deceived into thinking he had power to control and win any battle. He in turn had deceived so many others into believing him and following him, yet face to face with Almighty God, they are powerless. And they receive just punishment for their sins, their rebellion, their rejection, their evil acts. Firstly, it's the beast, the Antichrist, his false prophet who faced God. They had deceived and deluded the hearts of people. They had used deception to convince the world that the Antichrist was in fact God. Their plan was so convincing that the world bowed down in reverence to the beast. However, when the Lord returns, it quickly becomes apparent that these men, despite all their bluster and their miracles, were nothing more than men. These men are taken and they receive a fate worse than death. They're cast alive into the lake of fire. They are sent directly into hell. Hell is real, friends. Don't be deceived into thinking it's not. 
It's a place of eternal torment. It is a fiery lake of burning sulfur. It is not a pleasant place to be. We see it read there. Can you imagine the shock and despair as the people see their leaders taken alive and thrown into that lake of fire? But they don't actually have long to think about it because the rider on the horse comes with a sword that came out of his mouth and he kills them all. Those who are left, the remnant of the earth dwellers, now face the final wrath of God. This is a dreadful picture. The Lord who gave himself upon a cross for all who would believe now stands to judge those who denied him. In this, he is just and he is true. He has given every person every last opportunity to know him. And yet so many refused. They rebelled against him. They kept rejecting him. Friends, we must be aware of all that is to come. We await the glorious return of a king. There's a day coming when the Lord will take his own home to heaven to spend eternity with him in glory in a place where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, no more sin or sickness, uh, sorrow or sadness. He will take his own, those who have come to put their trust and their faith in him and Christ alone. And that's going to happen before this event here. Is that you? Is that you this morning? The scriptures continually show us our sin and point us to our Savior I seek to keep sharing the gospel with us, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, that we might get it. But at the end of the day, it comes down to a personal decision, a decision to believe the truth, a decision to confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Have you done that? Have you made that personal decision? There's a very clear warning here of what will happen to those who reject Jesus, right at the very end of the age, we are going to see what happens, and we've seen it before us this morning. It is not a pretty sight, so please turn from your sin today. Please crown Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And friends, in case you think that's all you need to do, that is all you need to do, because that's what matters in a sense. We just need to turn to Jesus for salvation. But there's a responsibility then on us. There's an opportunity there for us to go out and to tell the world now while we can that they need a Savior, that there is a God in heaven who loves them and wants to draw them unto himself. And so we get out there and we share the gospel while we yet have time. And then we will be home and safe with our Lord. And we'll see that we will be there at that glorious return of the king, and we will see the marvelous wonder of his appearance and who he was. Would you lift your eyes this morning? Not from the, uh, the struggles at the end, although it's important to do, but would you lift your eyes this morning and be reminded of that first part, the glorious return of the king, our Lord, glorious in victory and in power, our redeemer, our ruler, our Lord and our King, the one who is Lord and Lord, like King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, when this world is in turmoil, let's lift our eyes and focus them on the one who is, who was, who is to come again. But let me just remind you and invite you, if you've not yet put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, then that personal invitation is for you this morning. And it needs to be a personal decision. I can't make it for you. I'd love to, but I can't. Your parents can't make it for you. Your friends can't make it for you. Those sitting around you can't make that for you this morning. You have to decide yourself 
to put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. And then we will reign and rule with him forever and forever. Let's pray together. Loving God, we want to thank you for uh, all of these words we've been reading in Revelation and thinking on together. Lord, we want to thank you for that picture of the glorious return of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. Would you help us to do that? Would you give us the courage and the boldness to keep our eyes on him even in, in days when life is difficult and tough, days of worry and anxiety, Lord, especially. Would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Lord, I do pray this morning for those who don't know him, that this would be an opportunity for them this morning to come and to put their faith in him alone for salvation. Lord, I pray that this would be a reminder this morning to all of us of that day of judgment that's coming. And Lord, that that would encourage us and inspire us and push us to get out and to share with others the wonderful news of the gospel that we have. We have the truth. We have the hope for the world. Uh, Lord, help us not to keep that to ourselves. Help us in these days particularly to be pointing people to Jesus like never before, to be reminding them of our rock and our redeemer, of our Savior and our Lord. Lord, give us the courage and the boldness to do that, we pray. Lord, we pray that this word uh, would stay in our minds. We pray that the devil wouldn't steal it away. We pray that we would think it through. We pray that we would ask questions, Lord. We pray that we would apply it to our lives this day and in all the days to come. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.